Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, two of you are sad that you do not live on the East Coast right now. All right, good. There's one or two. My sister lives just west of D.C., and the last measurement she gave me early last evening was 34 inches of snow that she had gotten. So it's very sad to me to not be there. But so be it. We are here, and we are able to worship, and people there are not able to worship together. So there's one blessing at least. Uh, Brothers and sisters, as I told you last week, today we're going to be talking about uh, the issue of anger and the issue of lust. And so I just wanted to kind of let you all know that. If you have a child in here and you'd prefer um, the child to not hear about that, I understand. Um, And it's not going to be graphic, but uh, just to kind of give you a heads up on that before we dive in to our text today, which is from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 5, verses 21 through 30, as we continue our look at the Sermon on the Mount. And so let me encourage you to hear these words from Matthew. Jesus continues saying, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray. God, we come to you in this morning aware of your presence. Aware, as that song said, of who you are, of your love for us, your love for this body, and your love for the world. God, you created us in your image. You created us beautifully. And yet so often we choose to look away from that. And so I pray, Lord, that this morning that you would open up our ears, open up our hearts and our minds to you. Continue to mold us into the people that you need us to be. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable 
in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So as my girls have uh, been growing up, um, I've, it's been kind of fun to notice how their competition and their competitiveness with one another has also been on the rise. So when one of them learns to snap, um, all of a sudden the, the next one will have to learn not only how to snap, but of course how to snap just a little bit louder than her sister. And uh, whenever uh, one of them begins to jump, the other one of course wants to get involved and they want to jump just a little bit higher or a little bit further, and on and on it goes. And I, I kind of enjoy watching it because it reminds me quite a bit of when I was a kid. And even though I wasn't really in competition with my sister because she was four years older than me, I can remember oftentimes being in competition with uh, other boys my age. And of course, you can make anything a competition, right, when you're a, when you're a kid. And uh, I remember um, simply riding around in a bike and, and you find something that can be a ramp and all of a sudden you're trying to jump higher and further and you keep putting up the ramp until it gets higher and you can go even higher and the only thing there's only two things that stop this competition right Uh, either your mom comes and finds you and tells you to stop or you get injured right those are really the the only two things that put a stop to what you're doing and and most of the boys of course uh, we were hoping secretly that our mothers would come out at any moment and stop the madness but we couldn't of course let anyone know that because we had to be fearless really And so this whole sense of one-upping, if you will, starts at a very young age. And I thought about that as I read this particular sermon, or as I, excuse me, as I read the scripture passage, because of the fact that in many ways it seems like this is what Jesus is doing in one way or another. He, he seems to be kind of one-upping there. And over the next several weeks, we'll see Jesus do that again and again when it comes to the law. We'll talk about the fact that Jesus says, you know, you think that, uh, that, that murder is wrong, right? Well, I'm telling you, what about anger? Can you, can you possibly live your life without being being angry. And, and then later on, as we'll see here in a couple weeks, he talks about loving your neighbor. Oh, you've, you think you can love your neighbor. You think that's hard. Just wait. Can you love your enemy? I can do that. And there's almost this sense, right, of him just kind of continuing to one-up the process to make it even more difficult and more challenging than it already was. Now, I don't think that that's probably exactly what Jesus was doing In fact, I think that while Jesus is certainly making the challenge even greater, what he's really trying to do is to help us to understand what is at the root of the law. In other words, why in the world the law was even there in the first place? And Jesus wants to make sure that this doesn't just become something of a a checklist, if you will, because as soon as things become checklists, we stop really understanding why they were there in the first place. Jesus doesn't want us just to reach the end of the day and say, thank God I didn't kill anyone today. A successful day. No, Jesus wants to know whether or not you have been angry at all, and if in so doing, have you distanced yourself from a brother or sister? Jesus doesn't want us to kind of reach the end of our day and say, well, Thankfully, I did not have an affair today. No. He wants us to make it through the day and saying, hey, I have done nothing that has made anything less of any of God's creation. I have seen them exactly as God has created them and wanted them to be. 
So this is exactly what Jesus is wanting us to see. And again, remembering the framework for all of this when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, which is that Jesus is forming a community that can give a glimpse to the coming kingdom of God. Right? We, can all, we always have to remember that that's exactly what Jesus is trying to do. So what does that have to do with anger? Well, one of the important things to begin with is to understand exactly what it is that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is, oftentimes we just translate this, and even in our translation that you just heard, where Jesus is really just saying angry. But, but actually, in the Greek, this is in kind of the, the present participle, which means that it's probably more aptly uh, defined or translated as is being angry or remaining angry, or as someone has said, is nursing a grudge. So perhaps a better way for us to translate that really then is, is, is being resentful. Are you resentful toward anyone? Now that doesn't mean that Jesus wants you to just kind of randomly get angry, but it does mean that perhaps that's probably more at the heart of the matter, what Jesus is concerned about. Are you living in any resentful way? Because the longer that you are resentful, the longer that you are angry at someone, the more that it begins to warp the way that you see that person. The more that it begins to distort who they actually are. So that before long, that person becomes a caricature. They're not even real. They're not even human. They're something that you have projected as all that is evil. This is what happens the more that you focus on your anger with someone. My guess is that most of us, and I'm being kind, I know that all of us, have wrestled with that at some point in our lives. It may be with a spouse. It may be with an ex-spouse. It may be with a friend. It may be with a parent. But all of us have wrestled with that sense of being resentful, of being angry. And whenever we do that, we begin to make a caricature of the person to whom we are angry at. When I started thinking about that this week, I realized it was very easy because this is one of those things that's really kind of easy to think about. And one of the things, one of the people that I know for my own life was my father. When my parents were divorced, um, I was angry at a lot of different people, but my father ended up taking most of the heat. And there were a lot of reasons for that. And quite frankly, a lot of those reasons, I think I had every reason to be angry at. But as the days and the weeks and the months continued, I realized I just became more and more angry. And my father could actually never do anything right. Anyone ever think about somebody like that? And and, and everything that he would do, I could find the error in. Like all parents, he made mistakes, but I seemed to love those mistakes. I loved them so much, I decided to hold on to them and to just think about them. It gave me a sense of power, really. Now, not surprisingly, that wasn't healthy for me. And it certainly wasn't healthy for our relationship. And so as the years continued, finally, after a while, and it took a while, I began to kind of slowly, there was some forgiveness that began to kind of come into play. There was some forgiveness that slowly but surely allowed me to see my father less with kind of this anger and more perhaps as an actual person. 
Less like this kind of caricature where everything, I just assumed he was always doing something that was wrong or just to be mean to me. And finally, I was able to begin seeing him as the person that God had created him to be, as an actual creation of God, not just somebody that I was always mad at. To put it another way, I was able to see him less as an object of my resentment, if you will, and more like a human being. And the reality is, of course, if we want to give glimpses to the world around us of what God's kingdom looks like, then we need to be able to help them to experience what it means to actually be a loved being, a loved creation of God, and not the object of our resentment. And that's important to think about when it comes to what Jesus tells us we should do when we are angry with someone. Jesus says that when you come in and you're at worship and you are either angry at someone, you are resenting someone, or you know that they are resenting you, resenting you, what should you do? You should drop everything that you're doing at worship and you should go find them and you should be reconciled. Now, there are a lot who wonder whether or not Jesus means that literally or not, because most of the folks who were listening were from Galilee, where they would have been worshiping in this sort of way would have been a three days travel away. So they would have had to leave, go three days away, try to confess, make sure that everything is okay, and come back. And so there's a question, is that literal? It doesn't matter. Because what's important is that Jesus sees it significant enough to say that you can't privatize resentment and act like it has nothing to do with your worship of God or with the community of faith. Oftentimes, when we are angry at somebody and resentful towards them, we think that we can continue to live life the rest of our life and it will not be affected by that anger. But what Jesus is saying here is, no, it has everything to do. You can't just kind of act like you can worship God, no problem. Who cares about the fact that I can't stand this person over here or I continue to kind of smolder in my anger over that person? And Jesus says, no. You can't disengage those two things. They are attached. And if you want to be someone who continues to worship God fully, and if you want to be able to continue to love others in the community and elsewhere, then you need to address that anger that you have. And so I think it's important in the middle of a worship service like this, because this is exactly what Jesus, when Jesus said to do it, in the middle of a worship service, is for you to ask yourself, is there somebody with whom I continue to smolder in my anger. Now, as I said, this is one of those questions that if I were to ask you, most people will know very quickly. Now, you look at me right now as if you don't have anybody, and I see it. And I want you to know, I'm not going to ask you to leave worship right now because I want people to be here as I preach. And I want to make sure there's still somebody here who can preach. Because all of us wrestle with it. And so the question then for us this week when it comes to anger is to ask ourselves, is there somebody in my life whom I am not really looking at like a real creation of God?
like a loved human being? And if so, what might I do in order to help bring some reconciliation? It doesn't mean that the person hasn't done anything that has made you angry. It doesn't mean that the person with whom you're thinking about, even if it's yourself, has been perfect by no means. But it does mean that if you can't begin to move forward on that, that it will affect everything. It will affect this community. It will affect your worship. It will affect you. Which brings us then to the question of lust. Now, I'll be honest with you, this is not the most comfortable of conversations for me to have. There are some pastors, I think, I hear them talk about these things. It seems like they enjoy it. I do not. But it's in the Bible. And if you're going to read it, you got to talk about it. And as I was thinking about what's the best way to kind of break this passage up, I thought at first, you know, it would make much more sense to kind of connect this with what Jesus talks about right after lust, which is divorce. Right? Because all of us know that many divorces have happened because of the fact that somebody has lust after somebody else. But as I continued to kind of wrestle with it, I realized that, well, actually, maybe there's more similarities between lust and anger than one might at first realize. When I was growing up in the church, I grew up in the church, and when I was a, a teenage boy, uh, you know, full of raging hormones, and, and, and whenever our youth group would talk about this, because youth groups always seem to love to talk about this, whenever we would do that, I was, um, I, it always, I always kind of ended up the conversation feeling like sex and sexual desires, by and large, were evil. And I always ended up being incredibly fearful. Now, to be sure, that fearfulness kept me on the straight and narrow more often than not. And there's a good chance I'm going to use it when it comes to my four girls. However, I'm not sure that it really captures exactly why Jesus is so concerned with this particular issue. Or why it is so important for us as a community of faith. One of the first things to see in the first connections that we see with anger is for us to define exactly what Jesus is talking about when he talks about lust. Jesus is not just talking about when you walk along and all of a sudden you notice somebody and you realize that there's some desire there or that person is, is attractive. That's not really what Jesus is saying. Kind of like what we talked about with anger. It's a sense of the smoldering anger. It's the sense of looking at somebody whom you desire and then deciding to just stay there for a while or beginning to look for people so that you then can desire him or her. That's really more of what Jesus is trying to address in this particular situation. So as Jesus understands, of course, because God is the one who made us, he understood the reality that we are created with particular desires. But he also believes, unlike what some will say, that we have a certain amount of self-control. 
and that we have a certain amount of self-control that allows us, if we want to, to see people, not as we may want to see them, but as God created them to be. And I think in many ways, this is at the crux of why Jesus is so concerned about lust. Because in many ways, what lust is, is deciding that you do not want to see others as God has created them to be, but you want to see them as subhuman, as a caricature, as a tool for your own enjoyment. I love what Dale Bruner says. He says it very succinctly, I think. And so I want you to see this. He says that when we lust, the other person is no longer really a unique human being. She or he is now simply kindling, tender, a thing, a way for one to enjoy oneself, to express oneself, to feel one's powers. See, the reason why this is important to Jesus is not because of the fact that he thinks that sex is not good. It's not because God doesn't want you to have a good time. It's because of the fact that he realizes that when we lust, we are making the other person something less than what God has created that person to be. And the more that we get caught up in that habit of seeing people as less than God has created them to be, the more it will begin to seep out into all of our relationships. The more it will begin to seep out into the community. This is not a private thing, as so many try to say, just between you and whomever. This is is something that affects everything because it begins to affect how you see everything. And let's be clear, this is not just as we oftentimes think it. This is not simply what we might see online or in a movie or as we're looking at somebody walking around. This can be, lust can kind of take lots of different, have lots of different faces to it. I thought about that when I was thinking about, uh, or when I talked several weeks ago, a couple months ago now, about Facebook. I, um, uh, just this week, it was, I, it was Tuesday or Wednesday night, I can't remember. I was, I was at the house, and Megan was out, and she had just come in, and I kind of noticed myself uh, that, that there I was. I was kind of shuffling around, and these, uh, my hair was kind of messed up. That's what happens, you know, as, as the day goes on and as things get stressful, and, you know, you just kind of keep running your hands through your hair. So your hair is kind of everywhere, right, And it, if you have hair. And then, um, and I was going around in my favorite little fleece pants that have a big hole in the knee, right? And my kids are always wondering, why don't you get that thing patched up? Well, they're, they're so comfortable. There's no reason to do that. It's ventilation. And, and, and I was shuffling around in my slippers at one of them that's kind of coming apart at the seams. And I'm in this kind of old ratty racing t-shirt that I always wear. And I was looking really good, in other words. But one of the thoughts I had is, what if Megan came home and she's sitting there on the sofa and she's thumbing through Facebook and she's saying, she's looking at me and saying, this is my life. And as she's thumbing through it, all of a sudden she begins to see picture after picture of handsome men and, and beautiful families. 
And what if it's really more than just kind of a messy-looking man? What if the relationship is messy? You're having struggles as a couple. And all of a sudden, you're looking and you're, you're seeing things like Facebook or you're hearing other stories and everything just looks perfect. Everybody looks good. It's easy for us to begin to ask ourselves, you know, what if, if only I had made the different decision Everything else seems so much better. These seem so much better. It's easy to begin to live into a fantasy world where all of our desires come complete. Now, now not to speak, of course, of the fact that whatever is on Facebook, it is a caricature. It is not real. And yet, how easy is it for us to get caught up in thinking about how much better things could be? I don't know what your own temptation is when it comes to desires. What I do know is that it's remarkably important to Jesus how you view others. How you view what God has created. It's a part of the reason why Jesus uses such harsh language. This is not really like Jesus. Jesus tends to be very gentle. And yet Jesus here is talking about plucking out your eye. And about cutting off your hand. Again, I don't think Jesus is being literal here, but what it does reveal, I I think, is not someone who's angry, but someone who is remarkably passionate about you, about his community, and about the kingdom of God. Because Jesus knows how quickly when one begins to make others subhuman, when they become caricatures, when they just become tools for our own desires, how quickly that leads to brokenness. Brokenness of you as a person, brokenness of the community, brokenness in the kingdom. So Jesus says, don't play with this. Be intentional. Stay away. That isn't easy. It's not easy to not indulge in our desires which belittle God's creation. Especially not now. Not now with this easy access to we, that we have to internet Not now with television shows which love to show the excitement of living without boundaries without ever really showing the repercussions of living in that way. I got to be honest with you. I tend to be a pretty positive person. I tend to, as I think I've shared before, I'm not a big fan of Christians who act as if the whole world is tumbling, as if the sky is falling. But I have real fear when it comes to my four daughters. Being raised in a culture which by and large will judge them oftentimes by how desirable they are to others. And that will encourage them to believe that real freedom comes from having no constraints and just doing whatever you want with whomever you want. And it's why it's increasingly, in my own mind at least, important for us to remember just how important communities like this one are. 
This is not simply a place to just kind of come in on a Sunday morning and and go out and say, that was great, what a nice little lesson. This is a place that needs to be an alternative community, a place that says that things can be different, that you are worth more than what someone else says that you are worth, that says when they look at one another, you are not a caricature who is simply here to get what I want. You are a loved son or daughter of God. And what my children need, what your children need, what you as adults need is to know that there is a different way to live. That we don't have to succumb to our own desires or what everyone else says your desires should be. We need to be a place that can flourish and that can desire for people to flourish and look at one another, not of objects of scorn or resentment or simply as lustful desires, but rather as God's beautiful creation. We won't do it perfectly. Almost all of us will stumble. The world out there needs to know that they are not mere objects. That they are loved by God and by us. Not for what they offer to us, but because of who they are. Let's pray. God, we come to you as a people, almost all of us, who have not been touched in some way by anger or by smoldering desires. So we ask, God, that you would, in these moments, speak to our hearts. If there is someone, God, whom we need to go and to be reconciled with, I pray that you would give us the courage and the grace to do so. If we are someone, Lord, who has been caught in the trap of seeing others as less than what you have created them to be, then I pray that you would speak to us as well. that in the midst of that, that we would continue to be shaped and formed into the community that you want us to be, one that reflects your love for all. It's in your name we pray. Amen.